Chapter 28, Unexpected Detour Two days later, thanks to the efforts of the amazing family hosting me in Bishko, I was on my way to Lebanon. I arrived on March the 4th with a one-way ticket. My godmother and one of my cousins picked me up at the airport, but no one else knew of my arrival. Night was giving way to dawn by the time we arrived at her home, and I finally went to sleep. I joined my godmother and her habitual group of neighbors for their ritual morning coffee, where my presence was both a delight and fodder for the gossip mill. Assuming that news of my arrival would make it to Yola's home before I did, my godmother and I started for the short walk to Yola's home, cutting through fields as opposed to taking the main road. My village in northern Lebanon, called Kfar Hazir, has about 2,000 inhabitants, most of whom work and live in other countries. The village of my childhood was a single country lane, flanked by modest homes, each with its roaming chickens, sheep, or cows. Each family had its gardens and olive trees. Most people lived from the land and what their families sent them from working overseas. That little farming village of my childhood was now no longer. Chickens and donkeys were long ago replaced by the luxury cars that everyone seemed to own. Upscale chalets and villas now lined the busy road and surrounding hills. Our family home, where Yola lived, was modest by comparison, with two levels added to accommodate the growing families. Each floor was its own separate apartment. In a mostly modern country, there was still the traditional belief of families living together. My aunt and I entered through the kitchen door and made our way to the adjoining family room. I was struck by the stillness, an experience unusual in a home usually buzzing with neighbors, children, and the boundless energy of its matron, Yola. The hospital bed was a new fixture in the family room, replacing one of the sofas and adding to this new, more austere reality. Yola lay on her side, sleeping. She had lost a tremendous amount of weight, but still carried about 80 kilograms on her large frame. The chemotherapy had left her completely bald, save for a patch of hair just above the neck. I had already prepared myself mentally, so her physical aspect didn't surprise me. My godmother greeted Yola cheerfully, announcing that she brought a special visitor. Yola opened her eyes slowly, the very task seeming a tremendous effort. She blinked several times as if trying to focus. Her lips parted slowly and her eyes widened like saucers. Moni, she whispered weakly, reaching for my hand. I rushed to her side, astonished that she even recognized me, and embraced her. How are you doing? I asked. Tired, she replied weakly. Her eyes sparkled with emotion and joy, and she tried to sit up, but groaned in pain and lay down again. My godmother brought me a chair, and I sat beside Yola, still holding her hand. Her eyes slowly began to close. I felt the same weight in my eyes, and so put my head down on the bed and closed them too. I spent the first few days integrating myself into the family's daily life. 
Soon I was making meals and doing laundry. I was picking up the three children from school and helping them with their homework. I was taking care of the physical aspects of running a household and trying to remain open to signs or anything that would guide my steps here. In my time alone, I meditated with Yola, vis visualizing her body enveloped in a healing white light that penetrated and strengthened every cell. I kept her company when she awakened, telling her the everyday details of her family life. A faint smile usually served as acknowledgement that she had heard me, but I didn't always know if she understood me, for she often asked where she was and the names of the people closest to her including me. I tried not to feel disheartened when I responded and to hold on to my belief that all was unfolding as it was meant to be. I cajoled her into drinking or eating anything. She initially refused, but one day took a few sips of pineapple juice, which everyone took as a good sign. I started making fresh juice first with fruits and then with vegetables, and mixing them into various shakes. I involved the children in the task and saw how much they enjoyed feeling a valuable part of their mother's life. Yola sipped a little more every day, often from the hands of her insistent children. She was awake more of the time, and although still in pain, trying to sit up. She eventually did, by herself, and it was no longer a surprise to find her sitting alone in bed. She began nibbling on soft foods and purees that we prepared. To everyone's amazement, she asked to be seated on the sofa. With help, not only did she sit on the sofa, but even began taking tentative steps. Our jubilation was beyond words as we witnessed the miracle taking place. My walk, however, was never far from my mind. I wondered if Alberto was still in Medjugorje or if he would even knew of my delay. I had called the number he had given me several times, but no one ever answered. I didn't know how much longer I needed to stay and prayed for a sign to guide my next steps. It was the 10th day and I was adjusting Iola's sheets and pillow. A palm-sized wooden book that was normally under the pillow fell to the floor. I picked it up and for some reason began to examine it. On one side of the book was a picture of a Lebanese saint and the other a picture of Mary. I had seen that book many times, but only then did I see the word written under the picture. Medjugorje. How did she get here, I thought, trembling, every hair on my body standing on end. Who brought her here? My family has never even heard of Medjugorje, even though I mentioned that's where Alberto was. I felt a knowing then, a certainty that my work here was indeed done, and that whatever the outcome, it was the one that served the highest good of all involved. It was time to leave. I booked my flight the following day. On March the 18th, I was again on Croatian soil and walking. Despite suffering with a terrible flu and laryngitis, my body responded to my urgency and moved rhythmically, swiftly, shortening the distance between Medjugorje and I. I was welcomed in every town where I stopped. Blatona Setini, 
Lovrich, Imotsky, and every priest called the one ahead to alert them of my arrival. I crossed into Bosnia without incident. Had there not been a border, it would have been difficult to say that I was now in a different country since the language sounded exactly the same to me. Thanks to the priest telephone relay, I was welcomed in Drinovsi and now rushed to Ljubushki, the town just before Majagori. In the convent that was my home that evening, I frantically called Alberto again as I had done every night since my return to Croatia. But the phone rang frustratingly without end. I slept poorly and awakened early to leave. Deciding to try one last time, I dialed Alberto's number. Bog, a woman's voice replied using the typical Croatian greeting. I was expecting to hang up and was momentarily caught without words. She repeated the greeting and then I explained who I was in Italian. Alberto has told me all about you, she said warmly. Is he still there? I asked. Yes, he is, she replied. Oh, please tell him I will be arriving today, I said to her through my tears. I am leaving now and will meet him in front of the church. I hung up and raced out of town. Miraculously, Alberto had waited for me, and soon we would be reunited.